You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I have uh, Linnell Schneeberg. Uh, she's a sleep psychologist and assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine and the Yale Centers for Sleep Medicine. So, Linnell, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Well, good. So, I saw from the, the bio that you're dealing with, um, you're treating people with insomnia and you're using, I guess it's called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. That's right. Okay. What what got you interested in the uh, the world of sleep and then in the world of the lack of sleep of insomnia? Right. So I've always been interested in that that overlay between psychology and medicine and how a psychologist can make a medical problem better. And sleep is one of the best areas for that in terms of that overlay. A lot of people who have insomnia they do some things that really don't serve them very well. They I always say to the people that I work with, you know, you're doing um, a lot of the wrong things with the right intentions. And so it's really satisfying to work with them and help them see how if they changed a few things that they did, they might sleep a whole lot better. Yeah, insomnia, as with a lot of sleep things, seems like a vicious cycle. I'm assuming it is, but but how how does insomnia tend to start in people and how does it progress? And, you know, what, what happens to them by the time they come to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's funny because what people tend to do when they have poor sleep is they tend to keep allotting more and more time for sleep. So they will go to bed earlier than they usually would. They will stay in bed later on the weekends to catch up. They will um, sometimes stop doing their regular activities. You know, they might stop going to the gym because their sleep is poor. They might stop going out with their friends because they're fatigued. And it, it, you put it perfectly. It's a vicious cycle. The more you do that, really the worse your sleep gets. And then they just find themselves caught in a situation where um, we often use the phrase dread of the bed. Um, The bed becomes a place that they they actually dread going because they don't sleep well there. I've heard that it's not good um, to do anything in bed except, you know, sleep and and for sex. And the mind seems to be very quick to make associations with what happens in bed. You know, if you watch TV in bed or if you Read in bed, or if you just, you know, that kind of thing. What, why do you think there's this, I don't know, mental attachment to bed and what it represents for people? 
Yeah. I think that a lot of people tend to use the bed as for two things. You know, they use it for sleep, of course, but many people might use it as a place to mm, sort of a sanctuary, a place to get away. Um, it's not always a great idea, though. You really do want to set it aside just for sleeping. And so sometimes what I'll say to people is you might want to have a separate area in your bedroom, maybe an easy chair with a footrest, and you go, you might go to that place if you're sort of really to punch out for the day, so to speak, but you're not quite ready to go to bed and then get in your bed only when you're you know, really ready to go to sleep and quite drowsy. So again, continuing along the path. So what will start insomnia? Is there an incident or a typical type of thing that starts off the whole process? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. There's a model that we teach um, the patients that we work with, and it's called the 3P model. And the first P stands for precipitating factors. Okay. And what that really is referring to um, would be things that a person might have in, in terms of their personality. Maybe they're kind of a high achiever. Maybe they're a perfectionist. Um, maybe they're kind of a type A person. Maybe they're a worrier. Maybe they're a little more anxious um, than the average person. So that kind of person might have those, you know, those, um, those factors, but they don't yet have insomnia, if you're with me. And then, but they're at okay. risk, so to speak. They're at risk, for, so to speak, for insomnia. They have these predisposing factors. And then along comes something, and we call that the precipitating, the second P, the precipitating event. So something might happen like a job loss or a family health issue or something like that, and then they do have insomnia. They do develop insomnia. They were already at risk for it, and now they have an increased stressor in their life, and they do have insomnia. And then the third P stands for perpetuating factors, and that would mean that once that stressor is really better or over or gone, the person might still be doing things that keep the insomnia going. So, for example, they might, again, be going to bed a little bit too early. They might be sleeping in on the weekend to try to catch up um, and those kinds of things. So when I work with someone, the first thing that I do is I track their, their sleep. So I find out what's the range of times they might go to bed, what's the range of times they might get up, you know, given weekday or weekend, how much time are they awake in bed during the night, and so on. And I often find that people are setting aside 9 or 10 or 11 hours for sleep. So, for example, someone might get in bed at 9 o'clock and not get up until 8 o'clock in the morning because they're so worried about their sleep. But that's 11 hours, and no one sleeps 11 hours. So okay. I would say to them, you're signing up for wake time, right? There's There's really no other thing that could happen. You're either signing up for wake time at the beginning of the night or in the middle of the night or in the early morning. And no one really likes to be awake in their bed. So one of the foundational treatment um, concepts for insomnia would, is something that we call sleep scheduling or sleep restriction. And that would mean that we might collect sleep log information for a week from someone and we might figure out how much time they're actually sleeping how much time they're awake in their bed, and then we might cut them back a bit, right? So if someone came back to me and they were in bed from 9 p.m. until 8 a.m. and they were only sleeping about six hours, 
on, you know, on average, I might put them in bed quite a bit less than that. So I might put them in bed, for example, from midnight to 7 a.m. Does that make they sense? argue with you and say, well, then I'm not going to, you know, I have insomnia. It takes me two hours to go to sleep if I even do. So I'm only going to get five and that's not going to help me. It's going to make me worse. Exactly. So that is the first thing that people always say. They say, wow, it takes me so long. Well, of course it takes you to two hours to fall asleep if you're going to bed at nine o'clock, right? Because again, you're just in bed too long. You know, if, if my, I'm sort of an 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. sleeper. And if I went to bed at nine o'clock, I would be wide awake. So you're also yeah, doing have you second- seen, um, quick, quick question. Have you seen that different yeah. chronotypes have yes. insomnia more often than others? Yes, absolutely. So that would, again, go back to some of those um, precipitating factors. You know, someone who's a high achiever, a worrier, um, a lot of attorneys have insomnia, for example, because they're always sort of running a case in their head, you know, and they, they're doing a lot of sort of intricate thinking, college professors. Um, there are a lot of people who, who have a lot of very uh, mental work that they do. And they, they do very well in the daytime, but it's really hard to shut that off when they get in bed at night. All right. So what do you, so the first thing you want to do is restrict the time they're in bed. Yes. What about, again, depending on their chronotype, if someone says, I just love to go to bed late or early, you know, when will the restriction occur? Do you know how to dial it in so that it's ideal for them? Yes. That's a great question, too. So you're right. There are people we call owls and people we call larks, right? So people who really like to stay up late, people who really like to go to bed early. So what I do to begin is I ask them, what is the earliest rise time that you need to have for any given week? And that's almost always has something to do with their work schedule, right? So someone might say, I absolutely have to be up by 730, let's say. And I would drive really everything off, everything that I choose to do with them, I would drive it off of that rise time. And sure. then I would, I would work from there. Now, if someone is a real night owl, then I actually try to pay attention to their biological preference and see, do they have the kind of job that they could get into work a little bit later? And then they could sleep at the time that their body actually prefers. So a high school student is the perfect example of this, right? Their melatonin. Uh, when you uh, reach puberty, your melatonin gets released later in the night. High school kids often aren't sleepy until really near, you know, close to midnight, but school start times right. don't match their biological preference. So I work with a lot of adolescents and I'll try to find out if they could maybe have study hall as the first period so that they could sleep when their body is most likely to be able to sleep. Well, that's good. That's a good intervention. That would help at least 30 minutes, hopefully, you know, 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why those of us in the sleep field are trying to work on school start times. It would be much smarter in many ways if high school students went to school, started school when elementary school kids started and vice versa. So high school would start at 9 and elementary would start at 7.30, for example. So, all right. So you restrict the time in bed and you try to dial it into the right time frame. And then what's what's next? What kind of mental exercises or meditation or things people can do to help them sleep faster? That's a great question. So I think I said earlier that there's two foundational techniques for cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. One of them is what we just talked about, sleep restriction. The other one is what's called stimulus control. And that means, essentially what it means, is not lying awake in bed when you cannot sleep. And that's a classic behavior for someone with insomnia Many of them will feel that they can almost 
force sleep to come if they lie in bed or if they try really hard to sleep, they'll be able to sleep. And of course, the opposite is actually true. So once I find a good sleep schedule for someone, then I will also work with them to figure out what could they do that's quiet and relaxing when they're you know, at bedtime or after an awakening to relax and become drowsy again to go back to sleep. And those are some of the obvious things that you would think of, you know, listening to an audio book, reading a regular book, listening to a podcast. People do really well if they have a way to distract themselves from the fact that they're awake and drowsiness has a much better chance of recurring and pulling them back down, you know, into sleep if they use a distracting, relaxing, quiet activity instead of lying awake in bed. So what's an example of some activities that would help? Yeah. So reading a book, listening to a podcast, listening to an audio book, anything like that would be a really great choice. So that's, yeah, those are more passive. Is it a mistake to do active things like breathe deeply or meditate or, you know, because I've tried those things and those seem to be not as good as passive activities, like you said, where I'm listening to something, yeah. you know, music or you know, soothing right. music or an audio book or something like that. You're exactly right. So th- the kind of person who gets insomnia is the same kind of person who would be quite bored usually by a meditation tape or by deep breathing. It's just not interesting enough for them. And their brain goes right back to the fact that they're wide awake. So I tend to recommend things that are a little more engaging rather than a meditation exercise or a breathing exercise um, or meditation tape. I tend to recommend things that are a little bit more engaging because I think your brain will pay attention to that a little more easily. And then drowsiness has a chance to sort of sneak back up on you. Well, how do you make it engaging but not to, to the point where it wakes you up mentally and makes you think? That's a great question also. So I want you to imagine that your favorite author just came out with a brand new book, you know, and you climb in bed ready to read it. If you have been awake long enough and had a busy enough day, you just can't keep yourself awake to read it, even if you might want to. Having said that, I do tend to ask people to think of the interest factor on a scale of one to 10, and they might not want to pick something, a book, let's say that's a 10 for them, and they don't want to pick a book that's a one for them either for the reasons we just talked about. It's not quite engaging enough, but they might want to pick a book that would fall somewhere in the five to seven scale to read at night in order to have their brains engaged, but not absolutely fascinated by whatever that book was. What about something that's deliberately boring for somebody? Would that work Mm. or would that backfire? Someone could try that, but I think most people, if it's too boring, their brain will, you know, come right back around again and and be a little more focused on the fact that they're awake. I really am looking to distract them. Have you seen any companies that are trying trying to dial in some kind of cyclical, you know, somewhat exciting, somewhat boring music or other Uh, type of talk therapy to put people to sleep? Yeah, I have. So I haven't seen it in terms of music, and I don't necessarily think music is a great choice for most people. The tempos change, the rhythms change. Music can be an emotional um, thing for some people. So what I have seen are these bedtime story apps. So someone will actually record adult bedtime stories that are a little more intriguing or interesting, and then people might listen to those stories. So there's one, um, there's one called sleep with me. There's a few of them. 
So people might listen to those and be able to return to sleep. Many of the stories don't actually have a real point, um, but they, they are distracting and, and just interesting enough. Okay. You're right. There's that balance. Gotcha. Exactly. What, what is the, uh, the therapy component then? When you speak to people that have insomnia, you know, what do you talk about and what kinds of things do you need to help them figure out so they can let go and sleep? Yeah, absolutely. I'll talk about that. So um, what we're talking about is called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which means exactly what you just made reference to. There's the you know, cognitive things that people are thinking about their sleep, and then there's their behaviors. So I'm going to take a little tangent and tell you there's a therapy called brief behavioral therapy for insomnia, BBTI, and that consists of just four behaviors. One is reducing time in bed, which we already talked about. The second is keeping the same rise time seven days a week, which the body absolutely loves. The body loves the routine of a consistent rise time. The third is going to bed only when you're really quite sleepy rather than when it's, quote, the clock says I should go to bed. And the fourth one is what we have just been talking about quite a bit, distracting yourself if you are awake. So those are the behaviors that have that, that are the most important for cognitive behavioral therapy, and they are also contained under that heading that I just said, brief behavioral therapy for insomnia. The cognitive piece that you're asking about is it's my job to figure out what are people telling themselves about their sleep that really isn't true, but sort of has a hold on them. So they may say to themselves, I'll never be a good sleeper again. Um, I'm going to perform really poorly at work tomorrow. I can't believe I'm awake again. Why do I wake up all the time? Those sorts of thoughts are very, very abundant in the brain of someone with insomnia. And so I might take those thoughts one at a time and I might give them, those are what we call negative sleep thoughts. And I might challenge those thoughts and I might give them some positive sleep thoughts to combat those negative sleep thoughts. So one example might be, I might say to them, I might teach them to say to themselves, I'm learning new techniques. These techniques have worked for other people and they're likely to work for me. That's just an example of how you might take someone's negative thought and ask them to try to replace that with a positive thought. Yeah, I remember reading in one book, they said, you know, what you tell yourself when you lay down in bed has a big impact. So if you say, oh no, I'm only going to get six hours in the feel like garbage tomorrow, it's more likely to happen versus saying to yourself, I'm going to get six good hours of restful sleep tonight, and I'm, I'm going to be surprised at how good I feel when I wake up tomorrow. That's completely true. So a lot of times what I'll, I'll get, I have a fun example that I use for people, and I'll say, you know, if you were vacationing and you were up late dancing and seeing friends and having a great time and getting to bed at two, you know, in the morning, and then at seven, the sun came up over the ocean and you got to go for a walk and have a great breakfast, you really wouldn't care one bit that you only had achieved five hours of sleep on that night. But if it's a work day, we give ourselves a very different message about a shorter night of sleep, don't we? And that yeah, makes all the true. difference. But do you have um, people that uh, feel bad about when they sleep? You know, let's say they're a you know, heavy night owl, but you know, society and everyone tells them they're a lazy or a bad person because they go to sleep late and get up late. Uh, you know, like what, what are some of the other triggers or, like you said, precipitating events of mm -hmm. insomnia? Yeah. So I do talk to people a lot about that. 
as you well know, I work at Yale University, and there are a lot of people who are very creative, productive, brilliant people who really prefer to be more night owls. And what they're contributing to the world is fantastic, and it has nothing to do with what time they get up in the morning. So I talk to people a lot about the fact that if they can change their work hours to fit their biological preference of a particular sleep schedule, that doesn't harm anyone. As a matter of fact, it probably provides more uh, positive benefits to themselves and to their work teams and to, you know, the world in general. They're much more uh, able to contribute and be productive and um, have excellent work if they're paying more attention to the time that their body prefers to sleep. So what, what other precipitating events can cause, uh, again, insomnia and just uh... Yeah, so yeah, there are a job or exactly loss of a job, and then we haven't even talked about medical problems, right? So undiagnosed sleep apnea would often cause what we call sleep maintenance insomnia. So insomnia is often divided into sleep onset insomnia, which means trouble falling asleep, sleep maintenance insomnia, which means trouble staying asleep, or early morning waking, which is just what it sounds like. So if you have apnea and it's undiagnosed, then that means you're having breathing pauses at night, many times an hour probably, which causes many short or long wakings, and your sleep is very fragmented. And sometimes when you wake up after a long breathing pause, you might even feel a little bit anxious because that's almost as if an alarm sort of went off in your body and that person might wake up feeling more anxious than usual and not quite know why. So one of the first things we do when we treat insomnia is try to rule out any sort of more medical sleep disorder like sleep apnea, like restless legs, things like that. Okay. So uh, you know, typically you also send people for a sleep study as part of evaluating yes. their insomnia? Yes. If, if they have any symptoms that are consistent with sleep apnea, we almost always would do a sleep study first to rule that out and then begin treating their insomnia. If they don't have any symptoms at all of apnea and they really do seem to be more someone with insomnia, then a sleep study doesn't really add a lot to the picture for that particular person. Although it's interesting, if you are able to get a sleep study for someone with insomnia, they often sleep better in the laboratory, longer and better, and that always surprises them um, and sometimes annoys them. And what I always say to them is, that's actually a great sign. That just means that your bed at home is associated with frustration and wakefulness, but if you go into a new setting and can sleep well, that's a great sign that we can teach you how to sleep well in your home again. Yeah, I bet you a lot of the insomnia people tell you they sleep really well on vacation. They do. They're very mystified by that. Yeah, but but of course that doesn't take that much of a you know fancy degree to figure that out, right? They're in a setting where their stress is lower, a beautiful setting. They're often more active. They're getting more sunlit exposure. Um, they kind of leave their cares behind. So many people do sleep better when they're on vacation or at a relative's home or uh, in the sleep lab. So what's the prevalence of actual insomnia versus some other medical problem like apnea, mm -hmm. snoring? Yeah, yeah. The rates, the rates for insomnia are fairly high. Most, some people would say one in three people will have um, a fairly significant problem with insomnia at some point in their life. But we define uh, chronic insomnia as difficulty sleeping several nights a week for more than a few months 
and then we add one more piece with what we call daytime impairment. So there's something happening in the daytime that also is not going well, you know, too sleepy in the daytime, trouble paying attention in the daytime, things like that. Well, have you observed that, you know, more pain, is it, is it even when someone comes to you with insomnia that, you know, half the time it's a medical problem, half the time it's true mental, or is it more mental than physical or more physical than mental? And what have you observed? Yeah. That's a great question. It's it's much more often uh, linked to anxiety or low mood than really anything else. But still quite, you know, it, it can definitely be improved, almost always can be improved. So what have you noticed when you help someone through insomnia, you know, they're sleeping better, uh, you know, what are some unexpected outcomes that they have? And let's say they yeah. have depression or let's say they have a medical issue. Do you see unexpected beneficial outcomes from it? I do. I definitely do. So, first of all, they're just happier, as as anyone would be when they're sleeping better. Um, other people will tell me that they are going out more in the evening. They, they're increasing their social engagements and so on because they really have been shutting that down for a while. Um, some people will say that they've taken up a hobby, that they've given up. Uh, some people will have the energy to take on, you know, going to get a different degree or, or changing jobs. They'll feel less irritable with their other family members, with their children. There's hardly a shortage of benefits to improve sleep. Well, any unexpected but common ones that surprised you over the years? I would say that the biggest one for me would be um, sort of a, an increase in their, their happiness and their creativity. That's the one that I enjoy seeing the most. Okay. What about uh, your sleep? Because you study this so much, do you feel like you you like you know every every twitch or every uh, anytime you don't get perfect sleep that it worries you, or are you pretty relaxed about it? Yeah, it's funny. I was still just the tiniest bit guilty because I'm a terrific sleeper, um, and if I do have a poor night, I just consider it sort of a an anomaly. I think to myself that oh, I'll just get to read a little bit more tonight and tomorrow I'll be much more tired and I'll probably have a great night tomorrow. So I'm, I'm lucky. I, I am a good sleeper. Okay. And then, um, so insomnia seems to be long-term, I would guess, before people come to you, right? They've had it for years and even decades, or is it uh, yes. people tend that's to jump true. on this pretty quickly? Yes. People tend to let it go, you know, and that's such a shame. You know, I have patients that I see in their 80s and no one's ever helped them with their insomnia. That always makes me um, sad. You know, they've they've put up with it for so long. And cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is such satisfying work because really about 80% of the people that try that therapy improve and they maintain their gains really forever for years. Hmm. Well, that's excellent. What about um, just the daily? You know, let's say you're traveling, you're confronting possibly a jet lag or. Mm-hmm. And you have a big event coming up. Any strategies for short-term things that could precipitate insomnia long-term? Yeah. So a lot of times people do develop insomnia when they travel. And um, one part of insomnia treatment has to do with paying a lot of attention to circadian rhythm and then what we might call circadian cues. So mm-hmm. there are... Like gamers? <laughs> yes, exactly that. That is exactly what they I just are. like that so, word. That's a great word. (laughs) That's a fantastic (laughs) word. Most people don't know that word. That's a great word. So that would be things like sunlight, meal timing, activity, things like that. And you can use those to your advantage. So if you travel, you know, when you get to the place you're going, 
you can make sure that you use light exposure and meals and activity to reset your clock. Mm. So waking up is, you know, as close to a good time for you as possible and making sure like as soon as possible you get sunlight exposure, exactly. 15 minutes or at least a bright light. Exactly. And have something to eat. You know, even if you're not terribly hungry, you could just have, you know, a little something because your stomach has a clock. You know, we're learning that all of our organs have clocks and your stomach has a clock. And, you know, the sooner you send breakfast down there, um, the sooner your brain figures out, oh, this must be this must be morning for this person in this new place. Oh, so what have you uh, what have we learned about the, the clocks of the different organs or body systems? You mentioned the stomach clock is. I guess people think the only clock there is is the brain clock, but uh, what other ones are there and how do they influence yeah. sleep? A lot of people think that, um, you know, our bodies release different chemicals at different times. The ones that I, as a sleep doctor, are the most familiar with would be the ones, uh, the stomach clock and the brain clock. And those are the ones I spend the most time thinking about. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I've asked a few people this question, but, you know, I've heard, oh, cortisol peaks at this time and you know, mm-hmm. troughs at yes. this time and melatonin. I mean, what happens right. because of insomnia or just because of your chronotype, you're, you sleep at uh-huh. what people would call strange hours. What does that do yes. to your hormone cycles, do you think? That That is another great question. So let's imagine that you have two hormones that are kind of opposites of each other, right? They're kind of opposite sides of the coin. Melatonin, the one that everyone's heard of, and cortisol, the one that many people have heard of. So in the evening, melatonin starts to increase. It peaks, you know, during your sleep cycle. It tends to uh, release less, obviously, in the early morning hours when cortisol begins to release and in the service of waking you up. Um, And then after lunch, your melatonin might increase a little bit, not as much as it would in the evening, but you might get a little bump of melatonin. And that's when most people would find themselves getting a little bit sleepy sometime between noon and four o'clock in the afternoon. So that's fine to take a nap as long as you take a fairly short one um, after lunch. But there's another part of the day we call the forbidden zone. And that would mean if you take a nap around dinner time or after dinner time, the body would find that very confusing. And that often would then push your bedtime to be quite a bit later than you would like. Yeah, it seems really easy to stay awake longer than you normally would. But yes. It seems very difficult to go to bed earlier than you normally do. That's exactly right. So if I treat a, an adolescent that has uh, really pushed their bedtime later and later, so late that they have a hard time getting up for school on time, then we use a technique called chronotherapy. Um, another name for that therapy is the 27-hour day. What that means is, let's say that I had a teenager who can't fall asleep until 2 o'clock in the morning, but that same student has to get up at 6 o'clock for school. I might take a week and I might push their bedtime forward by three hours every day until we reach the new appropriate bedtime. So that teenager might have to not attend school for a few days and might push their 2 a.m. bedtime to 5 a.m., and then to 8 a.m., and then to 11 a.m., and then to 2 p.m., 5 p.m., 8 p.m., and 10 p.m. So it takes about six, yeah, it takes about six days. It's very hard to do. You have to usually have someone helping you, you know, a parent, for example. But once you arrive at that new bedtime, the bedtime that really would be the right bedtime in order to attend school, which for a teenager might be, you know, 10 p.m., then you have to use the 
circadian techniques that we just talked about, sunlight exposure, meals, activity, to keep that rhythm entrained is the word we use, keep that rhythm set going forward. It's difficult, but it's doable. And it's more doable to go forward, as you just mentioned, than to move your bedtime back. Yeah, I've thought a lot about, you know, you go to bed late, you try to ease it back 30 minutes Mm -hmm. by 30 minutes, or just go cold turkey and try to go to bed Mm -hmm. at a new time and you're tired the next few days, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually easier if you're talking about doing it that way, it's actually easier to get up about a half an hour earlier for a few days in a row and then another half an hour earlier for a few days in a row. It's actually easier to manipulate your rise time than your bedtime. Huh. That's true. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. If you go eastward, you know, to Europe, I mean, if you're in the U.S., if you go to Europe or, you know, further, the struggle is always to stay up that first day, you know, yes. until like 9 o'clock and then pass out, you know, without having exactly too right. much. That's a great way yeah. to do it. Just stay up all the way until the new appropriate bedtime. And then that mm-hmm. next morning, right, sunlight, a meal, walking around the city, all those things. Do you get a lot of people that say, you know, I just figured I was getting old. and That's what happens to you when you get older. <laughs> they give up on themselves. I do. I do hear people saying that. But there's no reason to. You can sleep well your whole life if you have good habits and good practices. There's no reason you can't. Now, um, the older you get, It is true that you don't always get a full eight hours or seven hours at night. People in their 80s may find that they sleep about six or seven hours at night and add a nap or two during the day, and that would be considered completely normal. It's also true that as we age, we get less and less deep sleep. You know, if you think about your sleep as divided into sort of light, medium, and deep plus dream sleep, as we age, we get less and less of that deep sleep. We still get light sleep and medium sleep and dream sleep, but we get less and less of the deep sleep. And that's just normal. That's a normal function of aging. Hmm. Is there anything that can be done about that or that's outside Not, the scope of what you looked at? It's just biological. It's just what happens. Huh. Yeah. And you, and you heard about people that uh, say, oh, you, you know, you can sleep six hours with one nap or four hours with the two naps or even two hours at a time. And, you know, you sleep in two-hour chunks six times a day or I think they call it the uberman the holly I think they call it but you know those weird sleep schedules yes there is someone who promotes that I don't believe in that at all I don't think that your body likes that very much I do think that you can be you can function that's a better word you can function on about five and a half hours of sleep I wouldn't want someone to try to do that all the time, but if you had a couple of nights in a row where you only got five and a half hours, you can function on that. Um, but I, I wouldn't try going lower than that by any means. Yeah, yeah. yeah and even uh, you know, not sleeping at least seven seems to be uh, lead to like impaired insulin resistance, and, you know, mm-hmm. predisposition, all kinds of diseases. It's amazing how important sleep is. Yes, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Okay, so um. What's the best way for people to reach out and ask you questions or ask for help if they're sure. in the area? I don't know if you, you do a lot of clinical work or if you see patients or it's more research. I do a lot of clinical work. Um, I also work to improve children's sleep. One of my big interests is pediatric mm. sleep. And um, so I have a website, which is drschneeberg.com, and that's just D-R-S-C-H-N-E-E. Be like boy, E-R-G, 
www.thrivingmomsdot.com, and that's full of information on improving children's sleep. I have a book coming out in September called Become Your Child's Sleep Coach, and it's for parents to help them improve their children's sleep. Um, And then I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and all the usual social media platforms as Dr. Schneeberg. Actually, I didn't didn't realize that we should have covered that a little bit. Can we spend five minutes talking about uh, children's sleep? Sure, uh, sure. I have children and, you know, they complain about sleeping or not sleeping. So what, you know, what are some things that happen in children and how can they be helped? You know what I'm going to ask if you would consider having me back when the book launches, because it's a big topic. Yeah, it's a big topic. It's a lengthy topic. And I would love, love, love to dive into that. Um, when, well, it's launching on September 3rd. And I would love to have, if you're interested, have, you know, a recording sort of in the can that would um, drop right around that time. That would be amazing. Yeah, definitely. That sounds like a great idea. Well, the tease forward and to give maybe just a few tips, is there anything you can talk about without revealing the whole content that would be useful to um, parents and kids that have trouble sleeping? I'm probably going to hold on that just because I'd rather do it well. (laughs) <laughs> then um, then say too little because it's, it's kind of easy to mess it up if you know what I mean. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I guess, what, well, I do have one question in that regard. Um, sure. Do people tend to assume that, oh, their kids, they're fine, you know, they'll get over their sleep problems and they'll be okay? Or, I mean, how serious of a problem is it if kids have problems sleeping? Yeah, it's a big deal. It can lead to all sorts of learning problems. It can lean lead to weight gain later in life. It can lead to behavioral issues. Um, It can lead to social issues. It's a big problem. And it's one of the reasons that I love talking about it. And I, um, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book actually, because it's, it's again, quite fixable, but people don't always know exactly how, and it's not rocket science. Once you know how to do it, most parents could, could become their child's sleep coach and could do a really terrific job teaching them how to sleep well. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, I enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much for having me. I love that you do a lot of of, um, shows on sleep. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.